The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Is, is this working? Okay. Um, yeah, so welcome to uh, the first of our sessions on the three ethical factors. And before I say more about that, I just want to express my delight to be back in the company of our dear Dharma sister, Bruni Davila, who has returned from a long retreat, period of retreats. Mm-hmm. And uh, would you like to introduce yourself a little bit? Um, sure. Ah, yeah, hi. <laughs> I think carrying you in my thoughts and heart, uh, some of you, um, well, on retreat, I knew that this program was started a while ago, and I'm like, I wonder, I wonder who, who is there and how they are. And so it's just wonderful to be here, be home and uh, practice with you. You know, we're all practicing together. Um, So like um, Chris, I've been also practicing here. I've been um, coming to IMC, and IMC has been my home for the past maybe 13, 15 years, and practicing uh, for a while. within the Vipassana tradition, a little bit of Zen, Tignahan, Soto Zen, all these different kinds of uh, different practices. And of course, the Eightfold Path is something that um, is, it has become part of daily life practice. Once we start engaging in the path, it's like we may get off the path in some moment, but one of us remind us that the path is there and we go back to the path. So I'm delighted to be here and uh, thank you for the opportunity uh, to share with you whatever arises, whatever comes up. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Glad uh, to, to have Tanya you Tanya and to Liz. Yes. Yes. Tanya and Liz are off uh, doing whatever they're doing today, so we are, we are it for today. So, this first couple factors, we've studied the view, our, our how we, what we believe, what we think about things, and how that informs our intentions, whether our intentions are oriented toward getting and having, and, and uh, in a little bit greedy way, or, or, you know, ill will, or cruelty, or are they inclined toward generosity, and letting go, and kindness and compassion and so where does the rubber meet the road on these things as soon as we open our mouths sometimes or as soon as we act or you know that's where really we get these wonderful mirrors to see what what are we actually doing and where is that coming from so it's both it's both a practice in itself and it's a way to to look back and get more insight maybe into the first two practices 
And for me, at least, it's certainly an inspiration to jump ahead and really work on mindfulness and uh, wise effort and be able to focus and concentrate more, those last three factors. So the whole path, as we've said before, is not a linear thing, but all the factors work together. So this month, we're going to start looking at speech. And many people over the years have said that this is where the program really comes alive for them and this is where they really start to get some traction with looking at what they're doing and why are they doing it and maybe making some, finding a way to make some effort to experiment with some other ways of being. So I hope it's a rich uh, topic for you. I think it's kind of an a interesting coincidence that it occurs during the holiday season when a lot of people have extra challenges with right speech <laughs> and, and uh, so you know it's a good thing to have in your in the back of your mind or the front of your mind as whatever unfolds for you over this season uh, is what it is so um, Bernie's going to start with a guided sit mm-hmm. that and then we'll have a I'll talk about the basic Buddhist teachings on this subject, and then Bernie will chime in with her reflections and uh, uh, a more embodied exercise around speaking. So, speech happens not only externally when we're relating to others, but it also happens internally as we speak to ourselves in different ways. So in this guided meditation, um, we're going to practice not only mindfulness, but mindfulness of being here in the present moment, but also of uh, internal speech, getting to know how it is that um, we recognize it. So we start by being here. By maybe taking two or three deep breaths to ground ourselves. Breathing naturally. Taking a posture that supports us in our intention to dedicate this time to cultivating our well-being through the Eightfold Path. And so as we shift our attention into bringing that intention to life here, we start listening. We start receiving what is being said through our this body, through our this mind, and through our this heart.
established in awareness. We start checking in maybe to see how are we right now. Listening to this body. As we are in contact with the chair, this body, the feet, with the ground, on the floor. Letting the body breathe in itself. Maybe without our intervention. Maybe in a very gentle way, shifting our attention to what is being seen, said, received in the mind, in this dear mind of yours. Getting familiarized with how you speak to yourself, how this mind speaks to what is receiving, to what is noticing. So maybe you notice, as you hear my voice, maybe there's a voice or some, something that you notice saying, I can hear, I can hear what Bruni say. Okay, I do that. Or maybe there's silence. Maybe there's a conversation going on about maybe a physical sensation or an emotion. Watching, hearing the mind. Maybe it's talking to you in images even pictures, 
Maybe there's in the background as you shift from maybe not getting into the content a lot, but just enough just to get to know what is being said without getting entangled in what is being said. Maybe also you can also listen to the tone, to the tone of how you're speaking to yourself. Maybe there is a, I should be adjusting my posture. Or am I doing it right? Or maybe a conversation about something that you're concerned about or that you resolved something from the past or something from the future. We are here breathing in and breathing out, practicing together. Maybe as you listen, receive your experience right now of speaking to yourself or other aspects of your experience speaking to yourself. Maybe you can notice as you listen, as soon as you listen, what is the feeling tone? What is the feeling tone of this thought of, oh my gosh, I have to do this, or, oh, I'm relaxed, I'm just here, present, I'm listening. Is it pleasant or is it unpleasant? the impact of your inner speech in yourself. Is there's a way in which you can receive and hear this inner speech without giving a lot of authority, but receiving it with wisdom, cultivating discernment, 
is this speech supporting me right now here? Or maybe this is not useful right now. Not to reject or to be in favor, but just to also noticing that you do have some level of agency and wisdom in how you relate to your speech, your internal speech. Knowing that at any moment you can shift your attention to the body. To come back here because the body is always in the present moment. Taking a break from listening to inner speech to receiving physical sensations. Trusting, trusting this moment. Receiving the in-breath and the out-breath. Resting in it. Relaxing in it. When you're ready, you can gently shift in your attention. You can shift your attention to listening again. Watching the mind, hearing what is being said, what is being seen. As you breathe in and as you breathe out.
Well, maybe now, in these last two minutes of our guided meditation, maybe you can intentionally, with wise intention, you can bring inner speech of loving kindness, of compassion, and of letting go into freedom. Any words that will support your wise intention of well-being in this moment here. Speaking to yourself kindly. And as you listen to the bell, receiving the sound of the bell, listening, which is this other part of speaking, listening without thinking what you're going to do after you listen to the bell, just receiving with no agenda, receiving the sound of the bell. Okay, so I'd like to offer some reflections on the principal teachings that the Buddha offers on what is right speech. So, the basic definition of right speech, the Buddha says, and what, monks, is right speech? 
Abstaining from fault, abstaining from false speech, abstaining from divisive speech, abstaining from harsh speech, abstaining from idle chatter. This is called right speech. So it's important to realize that speech includes any kind of verbal output. You know, today we have all this amplifier of our speech on the internet and emails and texts and all the ways that we talk not using our voices exactly. You know, but that that can promote a kind of disconnection of speech from the human interaction and maybe kind of defer some of the immediate karmic consequences of making other people angry. You know, so it's it's interesting to watch how we use that. It's funny, it offers this potential of more space where we could bring mindfulness and consideration to what we're going to say, but it doesn't seem that it actually has that effect. It seems to promote a sort of instant responsiveness that's a little disconnected. So let's look a little bit about these factors. Not to abstain to abstain from false speech. It's interesting to me that the definition is, as with so many things in Buddhism, is given in the negative. It leaves a lot of space for, you know, you might have come thinking we're going to tell you what to say at last, but it's not that. It's how to look at what you say with regard to your intentions and your views and what, are you, what effect are they going to have and where are they leading and so forth. So to refrain from false speech, it highlights this relational, pragmatic notion of this of this teaching it's not so much about what is the truth with a capital t which is something that the buddha tended to avoid getting into debates about but it's mostly about not using the act of speaking to carry out intentions to mislead intentions to deceive intentions to get more than your share and manipulate people so you know it comes right back to our intentions what a different world it would be if everyone could simply bear these principles in mind and appreciate the value of them. So as we start to look inward, look at our speech, look at how we use speech, we may discover, I certainly do, a whole range of circumstances that can lead to speaking falsely <laughs> in one way or another. And, you know, we need to be open to just looking at this. Oh, isn't that interesting? What is this showing me about some beliefs and some motives that I have or some anxieties and fears? And meet this with compassion, but with also the wish to understand. So maybe there are some edge cases in your life where you are... are tempted to speak in ways that are outright deceitful. You know, there's a lot of business world, business dealings, sales pitches, things like that that people are called to do in lots of aspects of lawyering and all kinds of things that are, you know, jobs that tend to push people in a way that leads to a little bit of false speech. Maybe manipulation within your relationships, wanting people to feel and respond to you a certain way and so either, you know using speech in a way to get what you want that may begin to veer off from the truth. It's really a great window into a whole view of what is our view and how did we learn to get along in the world that we may have learned from our parents, from childhood, from our cultures, from anywhere. Another reason is the strong tendency to attach and identify with our views. 
You know, a view has always got an element of falseness in it, almost, because it's one of these gross generalizations, typically, about, you know, what always happens or how those people are or something like that, that in a, in a real sense isn't true. It's, what is it referring to, you know, other than something that needs a whole lot more investigation and openness and more information. So in this world of, you know, we're starting to see this vast new world of fake news and data and opinion overload and everything, how do we discuss the issues of the day in a responsible way? So one of my favorite suttas that addresses this is this Buddha's teachings to someone named, it's spelled C-A-N-K-I, but it's pronounced chunky apparently. So a section of this is on speaking while preserving the truth. So I'll just read a little bit of that. And he, Chunky asks, but Master Gotama, that's the Buddha, in what way is there the preservation of truth? How does one preserve truth? And before that, he said that having faith, having some teacher approve it, having oral tradition, even reasoning about it, and having a reflective acceptance of a view, all these things may turn out either way. They may turn out to be true, they may turn out to be not true. You may get the next piece of information may have some influence on whether those are true or not. So then the Buddha says, if a person has faith, he preserves truth when he says, my faith is thus. Isn't that beautiful? So you, you don't have to not talk about things that are your faith or your belief or things you heard on the internet or things that you, you know, heard from somebody or what your teacher said. If you just preface it with, this is where I got, this is why I'm saying this. This is what I read in the New York Times, <laughs> you know, then, then you're preserving the truth. This is what I believe. This is my considered opinion on the subject. But you do, so you can say it like that, but you do not yet come to the conclusion, only this is true and anything else is wrong. So you, you stay open to the fact that all of these ways that we come to have opinions about things are, uh, could be prefaced in some way that leaves room for more information to affect your view. So how would you need to preface a lot of your views when you're entering into a conversation that's about views and about deciding how, what we need to do and what's the right thing? How can, you, how can you preserve truth in what you say? I find that in the heat of an argument I'm often drawn into exaggeration and generalization. You know, this is, everybody knows this is true. They, they always do that. They never do that. Something like that that just isn't true. So notice when you're veering away and kind of clamping down on only this view is true. So another whole area where we often get drawn into not telling the truth is basically inner emotional confusion, shame, fear of social consequences, not wanting to be seen a certain way, to be seen in a better light by others recounting what our behaviors and habits are. So working with this requires a really deep listening to yourself to begin to recognize and tolerate the truth of your inner life. You know, so again, you could, you don't have to, we'll get into this in a minute, you don't have to confess everything all the time. That's not the meaning of truth. It's about not lying. And especially not lying to yourself. And this can take some courage. It can take finding wise spiritual friends or people in the healing professions where you can talk honestly about this and experiment with your speech and understand that there's pent-up energies that need expression and that 
they're not, not, you're not certain whether they're the truth, but you need to sort of see them and hear through them and work through them. So there are ways to do that that have this self-preserve, this truth-preserving quality. And then finally, there's the whole area of sort of social fibbing, like, you know, yes, I like the present and you look beautiful today and all these things that, you know, maybe we say when they seem harmless. And they can be harmless, but it just definitely comes from a sort of, and it can reinforce a kind of distancing and controlling of what other people think and perpetuating your own self not really being known. You know, so you can look at whether something is kind. You can find an element of kindness, and yes, you know, you look you look lovely. You can find an element of kindness and truth in that. You can find some way to say it that encourages real intimacy with people and real openness in how you feel. So it's something to something to play with. It also can be a little revealing of not trusting another person's process of growing into being able to handle the truth of differences in opinions and differences of points of view. You know, so you might look at whether, you know, if you're always telling your children a sort of sugar-coated version of things, you might you might ask if that's really serving their ability to grow and their own ability to handle things that are difficult and controversial in some way. Um, so sometimes even motives that feel like telling the truth can lead to unskillful uh, communication. So another of the Buddha's uh, sort of sub-lists on this is that a statement endowed with these five factors is well-spoken. It is blameless and unfaulted by knowledgeable people. What are these five? It is spoken at the right time. It is spoken in truth, which we're talking about. It is spoken affectionately. It's spoken beneficially. And it's spoken with a mind of goodwill. So there's a way of, of needing to pour out our, our truth as we understand it when we're really angry with someone, really upset about something, that's kind of not exactly communication. It's more of a one-way pouring out. So what we need to bear in mind is whether we're having a genuine intention to convey something and whether we're paying attention to how this is landing with the other person, what is being heard, so that it's not just a one-way street without properly setting the framework of I just really need to say a bunch of stuff and I don't I know it's not necessarily true but you know you can frame it properly when you need to do that but it requires some empathy and some checking with what's being understood and how it's landing there's of course the whole area of the whole uh, tradition of nonviolent communication which is a wonderful adjunct to this teaching here where they've developed a lot of principles for more objectively speaking to other people. So you, you try to stick with what, here's what I've observed. These are the feelings that I'm experiencing right now. These are my needs. And then you can, if you have something you need, you can make a clear request that this is a request. You know, so principles for speaking your truth to people that are more likely to land in a way that they can be heard and be positively acted on. So, as Bruni was speaking about in the guided meditation, we want to highlight the inner work that goes on here. So, apart from all this, what is, your, what is being honest with yourself? 
You know, often we're telling each other, we're telling ourselves a little story that we've always told ourselves, kind of without checking, is this true? Do I, am I believing this or is this just something that I'm repeating habitually for some reason? So are you really listening to discern the intention of all those inner voices? How much they employ these false generalizations and plain untruth and we just take it on. And then there's the idea of really getting to layers and unpeeling layers and layers of what is the truth that our deeper practice is about. So truth beyond anything we could express in words and have a, have a proposition that this sentence is true. But the truth of our moment-to-moment touching of reality is really what the Buddha is pointing to, to our deeper truth. So back in that chunky sutta, the rest of the sutta is all about our practice of how we come to to really understand the truth of reality, which is really not through words and sentences, but through direct experience. So the second factor is not being divisive, divisive speech, and coming from that intention to divide. The Buddha says, for example, what he has heard here, he does not tell there to break those people apart from these people here. This has been going on for 2,500 years at least, so, you know. What he has heard there, he does not tell here to break these people apart from those people here. Thus reconciling those who have broken apart or cementing those who are united. He loves concord, delights in concord, enjoys concord, speaks things that create concord. So, again, really looking at why why we engage in speech whose intention is to divide people and to turn people against each other. Gossiping, backbiting, putting people down behind their backs. It's so, so frequently tempting to just curry favor with somebody by creating a little us and them. You know, a lot of office conversation about what they do. And it's all... It's all about making allies with ourselves and distinguishing ourselves from other people. So this really, this whole motivation behind that goes to the heart of the Buddha's teachings about how we take concepts or ideas to be referring to something solid. We take some little something somebody said or some feature of them we don't like and we turn it into a whole view of them that then puts them in the them camp. And then we get these, we enlist these to, we, naturally we seek safety by all kinds of tribal identifications and groups that we belong to. And so all that stuff is causing, it causes, it's understandable that, you know, we all need friends who can understand us and that we're relaxed around and so forth. But just looking at how you use speech to separate and not see the possible commonality with other groups. So you can notice when you're using speech to, you know, pick on the best, you know, amplify the best of your side and pick on the worst of their side and not, you know, not seeing any of these subtleties. Shutting down to more nuances of things. And what is it like to have an intention that's aimed toward concord and harmony and finding a way to speak to other people? I think Bernie's going to say some more about this in her talk. So in a smaller personal context, sometimes you're having difficulty with someone. You may need to discuss it. 
there's a kind of famous practice in that some people take on of not talking about third parties, <laughs> not talking about people who aren't there. And you might notice, what, what, what is that like? Every time you're talking to somebody about somebody who's not there, a very good practice is, could I say this if they were here? You know, because it very well might get back to them. And so, what are you saying something that you could not say to that person? Now, there are situations where you need to work out how, how you, your relationship to a person, and it can be very helpful to have somebody to talk to. But that's another reason to have wise friends and to have that surrounding intention made explicit that I'm having difficulty with someone and I need to talk to you about how this is and I know I'm not seeing this clearly. If the intention of the discussion is to help you see clearly what's going on in your relationship with that person, not just to solidify your view and, you know, make an ally against them somehow, then that can be, that can be skillful. So it's a matter of setting that context. I have a story I, I like to tell that I heard from uh, Michelle McDonald, who's an old teacher of mine, um, that somebody was, there, were, there was a very quiet person in a group that people she knew who never said much of anything. And everybody else was go- starting to gossip about some third person and they were all piling on, you know, complaining about this person. And finally, the very quiet person just said very quietly, hmm, I wonder why they do that. And it just, it just turned the conversation around from just all piling on this person to really taking that question, I wonder why they do that. You know, it, it helped people to see, oh, there's probably some reason why they do that. Maybe they're sad, maybe they're suffering. So, you know, just just turning the conversation. Sometimes... I've I've known people who've used this story to just make subtle turns in conversation at work or something when it's going very strongly the other way, just to tip it toward a little more compassion and and inclusion of whoever's being talked about. So the next factor is not harsh or abusive speech. Um, what's the tone of our speech? Where is it coming from? The tone is conveyed not only in sound waves, but all kinds of expressions and gestures. And who knows, you know, we are so subtle at understanding where something, inner tension is revealed in tones of voice and where where something is coming from. I know in my internal speech, I really hear overtones of twistedness and harshness. And I'm, I'm wondering where in my body am I holding the energy that's creating that particular sound that that voice is coming at me with. Communication arises from the whole body and I think it's received by the whole body. And of course, words trigger whole body associations. And especially these overtones, I think they're really contagious. You know, so when we're spoken to harshly, we, a harsh defense comes up and wants to respond harshly. So we tend toward matching. There have been studies that we tend toward matching in tone and volume and merging in this kind of coerced agreement of what we're doing or in an escalating mutual resistance and defensiveness. So it's actually a practice that it's possible when someone's speaking, when a, a, a conversation is getting speedy and harsh and so forth, to speak, to be mindful enough to simply speak more slowly and more softly yourself and see if you can get the matching, the subconscious matching going the other way. 
So, you know, when we speak in a harsher, abusive tone, it's probably essentially the entire content of what we've communicated. Usually think you're making some brilliant argument, you know, thinking of politics or something. But if you're, if you're angry, that's what's heard, you know. And the body just tunes out all the logic and all that level is really not accessible to the person who's hearing it. All they hear is that they're being attacked and they will respond accordingly. So the Buddha, in one passage, he says, monks do not wage wordy warfare. So... <laughs> Yeah, so really these, these intentions of ill will and cruelty, they get the upper hand in a burst of this reactive energy. And it can also reveal a lot, again, about our views. You know, a lack, maybe a lack, sometimes I find a lack of internal confidence in the truth of what I'm saying. Then I have to force other people to believe it. You know, if, we can, if I can just get everybody to agree with me or just force it, then I don't have to think through the fact that, well, this is only partly true and it's all very complicated and maybe I don't quite believe that. You know, so notice when you're trying to just force force the water to calm down around you by getting everybody to agree, which is not really likely to happen. Humor is a difficult thing, right? Um... <laughs> There are different kinds of humor and sarcasm and habits, you know. So we can look at how, where our sense of humor is coming from. You know, there's so there's a tone of sense of humor in our culture that's gone very far to a very harsh and cruel sort of extreme and things that used to be sort of lightly funny little stuff about daily life is not you know, you don't hear that so much on in entertainment these days. It seems to need to be extremely harsh. So, so watching where you're coming from. I know a humor is a little release of anxiety for me, and often I realize, oh, it's a kind of a sharp. It came out a little sharp. It came out a little inappropriate what I said. So, really, really, you know, exploring different aspects of humor. Also, it was pointed out by something I read, the difference, be, the difference, bear in mind how different it feels when you are venting at somebody and when you are receiving a vent. Or when you just think you're telling, you're telling it like it. That feels kind of gratifyingly good to you know, get it out there. But it doesn't feel so good to have that coming at you, right? So it's, again, that balance. And when you're doing your inner work on this, notice how you conduct your imaginary arguments in your imaginary conversation in your mind. How often are we imagining trying to be better listeners? You know, as opposed to concocting the perfect comeback or the perfect argument. You know, are you really practicing learning to attune to learn something new, to be open to something new when you, when you talk to yourself, to stay calm? You know, so there are ways of using our inner speech which is our natural wish to rehearse what's going to happen. We can rehearse skillful ways to be in what happened that might actually be what we would like to put out more usefully than just rehearsing little zingers and, you know, logical arguments. The voice of the inner critic talking to ourselves in such harsh ways, you know, it's really all out of scale to the situation. There is something in us, in all of us, that would like us to be perfect and would like everything to work out. 
And that voice gets sometimes more and more hysterical (laughs) out of proportion to what you really might be about to do, you know, that it's worried about or something. So really noticing how that just beginning to identify there's the voice that would like me to be perfect and would like me to not take any risks. It might be something from our parents, you know. If you had anxious parents, maybe they never wanted you to do anything the least bit risky or or they made you always do something. Anyway, wherever that voice comes from, get familiar with it and don't take it very seriously. You know, just know that it wants it wants the best for you. It's not so skillful about the way it expresses itself. So not idle chatter. <laughs> Where would we be without idle chatter? I don't know. So there's a very funny list from <laughs> from uh, the Buddha's day. What this is what contemplatives are not supposed to talk about. So you can ma- this is for the monks. No talking about kings, robbers, ministers of state, armies, alarms and battles, food and drink, clothing, furniture, garlands and scents, relatives, vehicles, villages, towns, cities, the countryside, women and heroes, the gossip of the street and the well, tales of the dead, philosophical discussions of the past and future, the creation of the world and of the sea, and talk of whether things exist or not. So... (laughs) So there goes a whole lot of conversation, right? But um, it's just funny. I like this list. Uh, <laughs> so w- again, it just all comes back to your intention. I mean, idle chatter is obviously a little social lubricant. It's ice-breaking. It puts a lot of people at ease. So we can look back to whether that's what we're doing, you know. Um, So it's one thing to be socially friendly, but if you can kind of stay aware of not only is that your motive, but what is the actual effect that's happening. So on the one hand, it can be an icebreaker, and on the other hand, it's kind of an ice creator. If you only stay at that very superficial level, you know, it's it's in a way, it's a real, something we all need to really work on with interest these days is how to have conversations with people that get below that level of, you know, what's your favorite wine and what did you eat? And, you know, that that gets boring after a whole long dinner party of discussing nothing else. I at least feel exhausted and and bored. Staying superficial, it's reinforcing our obsessions with trivia and material pleasures. And it usually slides into the realm of opinion and so forth. And, you know, there's also a lot of coerced agreement. Didn't we all love that or didn't we all not love that? And, well, what if you didn't? Then you feel like you have to go along and say you did. And so there's so much social stuff. So just being aware of it, you know, staying in tune with what effect this this idle chatter is having on you. Some of the inner work that we can do is looking at our unease with silence. You know, uh, silence is much bigger thing in some more traditional cultures where it's actually okay to take some time before you speak the next thing. You know, well, this is one reason we meditate is to calm our nervous tension that often drives a lot of this need to just chatter, chatter, chatter all the time. And we can develop some skills in allowing or encouraging a conversation to deepen. Some of the breakout groups here we have, I think people enjoy them because it's a little bit more real than... You know, what's your favorite TV show that we talk about here? And so maybe some of these questions could carry into some some way in the rest of your life. 
and really appreciating that we have the Sangha here and that we have this, we're developing this common vocabulary to talk a little bit more about things that matter. So, speech flows directly from our views and intentions and it can cause a tremendous harm if it's not used mindfully and wisely and compassionately. And it's a great channel of connection, harmony. It's how we teach and carry forth all the beautiful values and virtues that we love and share. It's healing and compassionate when it's used skillfully. So it's a rich area to really open up to investigating. Why am I saying this? Or after the fact is also good. You know, why did I... I do most of my investigating after the fact for a long time. Sometimes I get in ahead of it, but... I've learned so much from looking back and feeling into why did I say that and what was really going on and where did it come from. So it's all a very rich area. So now we will have a breakout group. So let's get into groups of four. If you can just get into groups of four. Has anybody not been here before? Is this anybody's first time of being here and experiencing these breakout groups? Okay, so we get into groups of four and it's specifically a time not to engage in a lot of crosstalk and directly responding to what somebody else said and offering advice. We're not about that. We're about each person taking a time to really see what they want to say and say it, and when it's not your turn, you're just listening to what other people say. So it's really about more about connecting with your own. See if you can speak truthfully, and that requires some silence is fine. It requires some quiet time to think what you might want to say and say it, and know that it's not going to be jumped on and agreed with or disagreed with or fixed or any of that. It's just going to be taken in as, as this is this person's best effort at offering something to say right now and there's no need to add anything to it okay so just turn around or break up see if you can meet some new people if you've been coming before (laughs) sit in groups of four Do you find the group? Or there's a group up there. There's another group of three. You've got... Okay. Oh, she's in with them. Okay. It's okay to have a group of five if need be. Are there any groups of three? Is every is everybody in a group of four? Okay, great. Great. So I'm going to read the question, and then I'll provide a, a minute or so of silence for everybody to think about it. All right? And then we'll go around and each person will have about three minutes to share what's come to mind for them from this question. Yeah, I'll say who... The first person can be maybe the person nearest to me in each group, if you can figure that out, just to save you deciding who starts. And then just go around clockwise, okay? And... Take your time. Three minutes is not very long, so it won't be time for the whole story of your life, but just 
a little answer. Uh, uh, what comes to mind when I read this question? Okay, so the question is, what is something you have learned, maybe about your intentions and views, from reflecting on situations where you've spoken falsely, divisively, or harshly? We've all done it. So sometime when you have spoken unwisely and regretted it and thought about it, what lessons have you, what did you learn about where that was coming from, your views, your intentions? Okay? So I'll ring a bell when it's time for the first person to start speaking. To... We have a few minutes to uh, have some comments from the group about either something that was said that struck you or what that was like to talk in a group. So, any? yeah, sure. Anybody? It's great to share what went on a little bit. Yeah. I feel like... Um, uh, a, a little bit of a theme in our group and something that um, I d- identified with was um, how your view of things uh, and your attitudes that you hold uh, can almost surprisingly come out later in speech that you wish you didn't say. <laughs> yeah. um, so almost a kind of at the root of right speech is... Uh, recognizing some of those preconceived ideas that you have and um, kind of spending time on them. In one example, somebody kind of, uh, you know, um, regrettably lashed out based on a, on a preconceived idea, and I uh, I identify because I've I've been that I've been the recipient of that, mm-hmm. <laughs> and. Um, it makes me want to spend more time kind of as part of my meditation thinking about the people in my lives and who I have kind of uh, attitudes about, you know, they're a certain way and uh, kind of reconfigure my, uh, you know, how I think about them and be a little bit more kind of understanding and, mm-hmm. and give them, assume, assume the best. <laughs> so that was just some thoughts I had. Thank you. I really appreciated in our group um, somewhat related threads about when we express things, particularly in anger, and what we actually want to accomplish. And maybe it is the expression of anger, or maybe underneath that is a want for something else, for understanding, for love, for... um, and so I, I was thinking back through times that I had a similar experience of saying things in anger and unpeeling that underneath that was I was really wanting something else as a result beyond just, you know, yeah. expressing my anger. Thank you. Thank you. Thank um, you. I learned a lot from the group discussion, even more so in the last two months of this course, 
Uh, looks like my thinking capacity quadrupled in two months. <laughs> Thank you for that. The big thing about the right intention for me, you know, being in the high-tech, high-paced world all the time, I'm expected, trained to be ambitious and have the take-no-prisoners attitude, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And I brought that into my personal life a lot to my own detriment, mm -hmm. to a large extent. Uh, and this, this reflecting week by week and taking notes on it, came out a lot. It was a very unsettling feeling as I was doing it. Uh, the, the biggest thing for me was to learn the construct of responding, not reacting, mm. particularly yeah. in the face of intention. I was also reflecting more on, Gil was talking a couple of weeks ago on Sunday about impulse versus reacting. <laughs> right? mm -hmm. There's even a, I was operating probably between impulsive and reacting, <laughs> let alone <laughs> skillfully responding. That's a giant leap for me. I'm not there yet, but at least I know that some things could be done better. Right? Mm -hmm. The last comment I learned through this uh, right intention thing is, which is strange word in Silicon Valley particularly, is about being humble or ex practicing humility. We don't use that term enough. <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> to me that word more i bring it into myself the yeah. better rest of the step seems to align yeah thank you thank you Have one more anybody sure mark Yeah, to back up what was just said, I <clears throat> recall another incident, which I didn't share with the group, where I, where everything was so goal-oriented, I didn't think, you don't think about social niceties, you just plunged into someone, I said, okay, you're going to get this done, you know, it was like Monday morning, da-da-da, and, and somehow he thought I was being superior or something, he said, well, what about good morning or something, you know? <laughs> I mean, it was really a revelation, like, oh, was I doing it? I was just trying to be productive here, you know? And that was quite revealing, like, how I approach people yeah. at that stage. So that was something. Yeah. And by the way, a little plug. I happened to look at Audio Dharma that today. I wasn't there this morning, but I noticed there was a talk was on wise speech oh, good. in the modern world. It's okay. FYI. Okay. <laughs> Had a full day. <laughs> Okay, well, let's take a 14-minute uh, break. <laughs> so we'll try to come back at 2.30. Oh, wait, I'm, excuse me, I forgot. I'm sorry, thank you. A little announcement. Okay, I just have a very brief announcement. My name is Irene, and um, I have been connected to a Donate, I just throw stuff in the back of my car and drive it down. So um, you can contact me 